Good morning. If everyone could just stand for the reading of scripture. We're going to be reading in the book of Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, and then we're going to skip down to verses 12 through 16. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Verse 12, therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing us here today, Lord, and I just pray that our hearts will be soft to hear what your Holy Spirit would have to say to us, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you would remind me that I need to hear this message just as much as anybody else in this room, and I pray, Lord, that you would humble us before you and show us how we can be more like Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I'm going to ask you to do something that you might not want to do, and that is... Imagine, if you will, that you are in the ninth grade. <laughs> Just take yourself there mentally. You have a really tough English teacher, and you have a book report that is due tomorrow. And you have read less than half of your book. <laughs> By the time school gets out, you go to your after-school practice or club, you get home and have dinner, it's gonna be after seven o'clock. And you're thinking to yourself, how am I going to get this done? I haven't even finished the book. And your heart kind of pounds every time you think about it. So you get home that night and you settle down and you sit at the computer and you think, all right, it's time for the book report. And there is just no way I can read the whole book before tomorrow. So you get online and you look up some summaries, but you know you're kind of missing some details, the story's not making sense to you, it's taking a long time, and the hours just seem to be flying by and you're not really making any progress. You just wanna go to bed, you just wanna get, over, get this over with, get to bed. And then you discover, it's a miracle. Your book was made into a movie. <laughs> so you go to Netflix, because it's modern day, and you go to Netflix, and you type in the title, and there it is, your book summarized, brought to life in under two hours. So if you're really good, you can write the report while you watch the movie. You can just fill in the blanks as the movie informs you of what the book said. So congratulations, you write the movie, 
you, you watch the movie, you write your report, and you live to see another day, and you will pass ninth grade English. Congratulations. Now, a few weeks pass, and you get your book report back, and you barely passed it. You got a D minus. And there is a note at the top in bright red ink that says, see me after class. So after class, you nervously approach your teacher's desk, and she says, you know, I could really tell that you waited until the last minute to write this report. There's a lot of typos, spelling errors, grammar errors, but even more than that, you really missed a lot of the symbolism. You missed a lot of the themes that the author brought up in the book. And I can't prove that you watched the movie instead, which is why I'm giving you a passing grade. But in the future, you will need to actually read the book to get a good grade on these reports. You see, your book just didn't really capture, your book report did not capture the spirit of the book. So. Has anybody ever had their favorite book made into a movie? What did you say afterwards? It's not as good as the book, right? Kind of lets you down. Because movies are intended to bring stories to life, but this is really difficult when you're trying to cram a 500-page book into a two-hour movie, and filmmakers have limited time, resources, technology, limited money. And the author's only limitation when writing the book is that of his own imagination. So when I read a book, I kind of project my own images of the characters, of the places. I can kind of hear what they're saying, hear their voices, feel those emotions. So of course, I'm going to be disappointed when I see a filmmaker's interpretation of my favorite book because it's not going to measure up to the image I had in my mind. So I had this experience with the Netflix series called Anne with an E because I love Anne of Green Gables. And Anne with an E, the only thing it has in common with Anne of Green Gables is the characters' names, honestly. And I was getting so mad. I was yelling at the television, like, that never happened. She, she would not do that. Who is that kid? Because he had one sentence in the whole series, and now he's like a main character in this, in this series of movies or whatever they're supposed to be. I was so mad that like four, four episodes in, I said, I turned it off in the middle of the episode. I said, I can't take it, can't take it anymore. This is not the story that the author told and I can't watch it. So I wanna talk about the greatest book ever written and that's the Bible. The events in this book changed the course of human history and our job as Christians is to bring scripture to life. We are called to live out the commands given to us in the Bible, and in doing so, embody the character and love of Christ. This book tells us how to live like Christ, how to bring his love and his character to life in the world around us. So that got me to thinking, what are those little inconsistencies in our lives? What are the things we do that make God cringe and say, that is not how I told them to live? That's not consistent with the character of Christ. That is not what I wrote in the book. Paul writes to the church of Philippi in Philippians 2, and he outlines actions that might seem small, but have a hugely negative impact on our ability to reflect Christ to the world around us. In verse 3, 
he instructs the church to do nothing out of selfish ambition. So here's an example of selfish ambition in my own life. When I was a teenager, my mom would leave me at home in the summer and she would leave a list of chores that me and my sister had to complete before she got home from work that night. And the instructions were just do half of the chores on the list. So some of the chores were really easy, like dust the family room. Well, that would take like 10 minutes. I could get that done really fast. But some of the chores were time consuming, like organize the pantry. That, that could take like an hour or so, or sweep and mop the kitchen floor. And this was before Swiffers, so there was a lot of steps involved in mopping a floor. So I realized if I get to that list before Tatum gets to that list, I can pick out all the easy chores and write my name by them and leave all the hard ones for her to do. And I'll be done with my chores in like an hour and she'll be working all day. This would be great. So I did that. And I would say, yes, I did half of the chores. But I would kind of gloss over the fact that I had taken all of the easy ones. So Tatum caught on and reported me to mom. <laughs> and so then my mom had to categorize the chores based on difficulty and tell us, you have to do this many chores in this category, this many chores in this category. So my selfish ambition made my mom's life a little bit harder. So acting out of selfish ambition simply means putting your wants above everybody else's wants. When you're working on a group project with your coworkers, you're trying to make sure that everything goes your way and everything lines up to the picture you have in your mind of how this project should go. So you might do this by immediately appointing yourself the boss and saying, here's the parts I'm going to do, and here's the parts that nobody else wants to do, but I'm going to make everybody else do them because I don't want to do them. Or you might do this by trying to manipulate the people in the group into doing things your way, maybe by talking disparagingly about another member whenever they're about to be given the part that you want to do, like, oh, I don't think she can handle that. Like, did you see how she did on that last one? Not so good. You better give that part to me. Or you might just insist on your own way, dig in your heels, and prevent any project until the group just out of desperation has to give in to you and do what you want. Or you might not like conflict, so you just don't do the things you don't like doing and hope that somebody else picks up your slack. You see, selfish ambition says, I am the only person who matters. Selfish ambition never takes one for the team. And selfish ambition views others as the means to a desired end or as obstacles between him and what he wants. So we are warned against selfish ambition because it doesn't reflect the character of Christ. In verse 3, the church is also instructed to do nothing out of vain conceit. Now, vain conceit means looking to be praised and acknowledged. So sometimes acting out of vain conceit looks like kindness, but the motive is really self-serving because vain conceit will hold the door for the boss, but not for the maintenance man. And vain conceit gets angry when his actions don't result in gratitude and praise. Vain conceit will do you a favor, but if you don't acknowledge that with the appropriate amount of thanks and gratitude, vain conceit is never going to do that favor for you again, and they're probably going to hold a grudge about it. Vain conceit doesn't acknowledge the contributions of others to his success. And vain conceit wants everyone to know that he is self-made and doesn't need anyone to be successful. Vain conceit does not reflect the character of Christ. And when we're so worried 
about being praised, so worried about being acknowledged, we tend to complain a lot. And when you get down to verse 14, the church is instructed to do everything without grumbling or complaining. When I was living in Indiana for graduate school, I went to a haunted corn maze with a girl that I had known for about two months, so I really didn't know her very well. But she knew a group of people going to this corn maze, and she invited me, and I was bored, so I went. And I find myself entering this haunted corn maze with a girl I had known for a couple months and three people that she introduced me to that night when we got there. So I really did not know these people that I was with. And we are no more than 50 yards into this corn maze. And the girl I came with just starts complaining nonstop. I hate this. Why would anybody come to one of these things? This is stupid. What is the attraction? She's just going on and on. And mind you, nothing scary has happened yet. <laughs> nothing. Just in the anticipation of being scared, she has decided that she hates the experience. So I'm thinking to myself, okay, this is really awkward. I don't know any of these people. She's miserable. She's trying to make everybody else miserable. She's probably going to try to talk us all into leaving before we're done with the maze. So I just start pulling out all of the stops, trying to, like, counteract her complaining. So I start telling jokes, anything I can think of. I start singing VeggieTales songs. <laughs> I'm walking through a haunted corn maze singing God is Bigger Than the Boogeyman to people that I do not know. I thought maybe she's scared and this song will remind her that God is with her. <laughs> I don't know. I'm like trying to get the other people to have conversations with me and like get the attention off of her so that they can have fun and so that I can have fun. But no matter what I do, her complaints just keep coming. I hate this. I think my trying to be fun made her even more unhappy. <laughs> so I hate this. What is the point of this? This isn't fun. I don't like it. I want to leave. So her complaints just sucked the fun out of the entire experience. And I will have you know that even though she left that maze early, I finished it. Because <laughs> I paid $10 and I wasn't wasting my money. <laughs> so no matter how hard I tried, I couldn't take away that awkwardness that her complaining brought to the group. You see, hearing a complaint is like having somebody with the flu sneeze in your face. It's a gross visual, but it's true. That complaint contaminates you with the underlying virus that is causing their misery. Have you ever heard somebody complain about something or someone that didn't really bother you before, you didn't really think that person was annoying, or you didn't really find that thing to be bothersome until you heard a complaint about it, and now all of a sudden it's the most annoying thing you've ever seen, the most annoying person you've ever dealt with, just because somebody else told you it was annoying? Complaining spreads bitterness and discontent. It steals your joy and the joy of the people around you. It's inconsistent with the attitude of Christ. Jesus didn't complain when he was being crucified. And he doesn't complain about our shortcomings. Instead, he lifts us up in prayer. Romans 8.34, who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. So next time someone gets under your skin, rather than complaining, lift him up to the Father in prayer. And I'll be the first to admit that there was somebody I worked with last year, and I prayed for her a lot. <laughs> 
I had to turn those complaints and that bitterness into prayers. And when we start to have that more prayerful attitude and hold back those complaints, we'll find a lot more peace in our lives and a lot less arguing, which is what we are also instructed not to do in verse 14, do everything without arguing. Did you know, I think there are a lot of politicians who don't know this, that it is possible to express a difference of opinion without being argumentative? Oh my goodness, that's crazy. Our culture today is fraught with tension and extreme differences of opinion. But as Christians, we can't be walking around with our hackles up, like all defensive, just waiting for a fight every time we turn around. Oh, I hope somebody says something to me about that because I have just the right comeback for them. That's not, that's not our attitude. When we find ourselves facing conflict, we have a few options for how we can respond in a Christ-like way. Now, the first response should always be our response, no matter what the nature of the conflict is. And that is to make it your first priority to understand the other person's perspective. James 1.19 says, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. So no matter what the conflict is, no matter who it is throwing something in your face, saying, why is it this? Why didn't you do that? Take time to understand them. Take time to understand where they're coming from and where those emotions are coming from before you have to get your own emotions and your own perspective out. Take time to understand. We can't bring peace until we understand all sides of the argument. We have to seek first to understand and then to be understood. Now the next three responses kind of vary depending on what type of conflict we're faced with. So the first option is just calmly and respectfully provide truthful and accurate information. Now this is how we respond when the other person's opinion is directly opposed to biblical truth. We just calmly and rationally explain our beliefs without any expectation that we're going to change their mind. This is why I believe what I believe. Take it or leave it. 1 Peter 3.15, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. <clears throat> this is also our response when we know that we're right, but that the other person has bad information or is just trying to get us to argue with them. Proverbs 15.1, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. A couple years ago, a family member of mine who shall remain nameless got into a slight fender bender leaving the driveway of our house. And my mom saw it happen, so she went out to make sure that everything was okay and to help this person deal with the situation. And the woman who um, hit, hit the car that, as it came out of our driveway jumps out of her car. She's screaming. She's yelling, you're so stupid. I can't believe this, blah, blah, blah just going on. She's yelling at my family members. She's yelling at my mom and just completely irrational. My mom finally just very gently says to her, can you please show me what damage was done to your car? And the woman turns and looks at her car. There is not one single scratch. There is not a dent, nothing. I mean, the impact was at like five miles an hour. There, nothing happened to her car. And then all of a sudden she, oh, okay. Yes. Well, I guess we don't need to make a police report. I guess it's okay. You know, and all of a sudden she's fine. Because that gentle, soft answer turned away that anger. It diffused that anger. We have to have control of our emotions. We need to be able to remain calm and rational even when someone is screaming in our face. A soft, gentle answer that says, these are the facts, is much more powerful than yelling back. 
Now another option for how we respond to conflict is to turn the other cheek. And this is how we should respond to passive aggressive actions, to petty insults from people who really don't or shouldn't have any power over us. So if you have a coworker or a family member who seems to pick at you and to criticize you and you can never do anything right, just remind yourself that that has everything to do with them. That is their insecurity. It has nothing to do with you. You didn't do it. It's their problem, not yours. You have to ignore those jabs. You have to be a rock, not a pincushion. Don't give spiteful, vindictive people the power to control your actions and your emotions. Some things just aren't worth acknowledging. Matthew 5.39, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Don't let those little jabs, those little slights, you know, somebody walks by you and doesn't say hello and you know it's because they don't like you. Don't let that get any more than skin deep. Just move on. Another response to conflict that is a godly Christ-like response, admit your wrongdoing, humble yourself, and ask for forgiveness. This is our response when we are wrong, when we have sinned against someone, or when we have made a mistake that affected other people. I had to do this two days ago to my 14-year-old. I was wrong. I got too annoyed with you. I'm sorry, right? It's kind of hard because I wanted her to be wrong, but really I was. <laughs> Proverbs 28:13. whoever conceals their sins does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. For some of us, admitting that we are wrong is incredibly difficult. I include myself in that. But sometimes we have to say, I did this. It was wrong. My actions hurt you. I know better now. I'm going to do better next time. Admitting your wrongdoing invites mercy, whereas being defensive and refusing to admit that you're wrong just brings more condemnation and strife into your life. Now, these four patterns that undermine our ability to show the love and character of Christ are not only incredibly easy to fall into, but they're really easy to instill in our kids. So if I have this attitude of my world always revolves around my children, that teaches my children selfish ambition. For the first two years of every child's life, and I know this, I have a one-year-old, your world should absolutely revolve around that child. When you live with a child from birth to age two, they control when you eat, when you sleep, how late you stay out, how sane you feel, and so on and so on. How your house smells, they even control that. But with each passing year, your child needs to become more and more aware of the fact that you have important things going on in your life that are separate from your children. By the time your children reach their teen years, they need to know and understand that there is a time for everything. There are times when your children should absolutely come first. You should drop everything and be there and be what your child needs. But there, is also, there are also times when your spouse needs to come first. There are times when your work needs to come first. There are times when an ailing family member comes first. There are times when your own health needs to come first. You might have to miss a game or a recital or taking your kid lunch that day because something else needs to come first at that moment in time. The transition from my baby really needs me to my teenager needs to be more independent doesn't happen overnight. It's a gradual process. It feels like two steps forward, one step back a lot of times. But it's a process that has to happen if we don't want our children to become adults who believe that the world exists to please them. Now, if I walk around 
saying to myself and saying to my child, my children deserve all of the things. Just fill in the blank with whatever you think. That can turn into vain conceit. I have a 14-year-old daughter. She's smart. She's pretty. She's athletic. She's awesome. I think she deserves to be acknowledged. I think she should win a lot of prizes and awards. I think she should never have to sit the bench on any team that she plays on. <laughs> That's my humble opinion. And it's really difficult for me when she doesn't get something that I feel like she deserves. But I can't whine and complain every time another child gets acknowledged over her. I can't come home from all of her games and say, why did that girl play as much as she did? You should have been playing way more. You're way better than her. And I can't come home from award ceremonies and say, your teachers are crazy. You should have got that award. That my child deserves this attitude breeds vain conceit. This attitude teaches our children that if they can't be the best, then there's no point in trying. It teaches them that they should only work hard if someone's going to acknowledge them. And it instills in them a sense that they are better and more deserving than everybody else. When we expect for our children to be praised and rewarded for everything they do, we instill in them vain conceit. And like I said before, vain conceit gives way to complaining and grumbling. And complaining is contagious. When your children hear you complain about work, they are going to complain about anything that feels like work. When they hear you complain about cleaning up the house, they're going to complain when you ask them to clean up the house. When they hear you complain about their other parent, they are going to complain about not just that other parent, but they're going to complain about you too. We need to demonstrate for our children how to have a positive attitude in the face of even the most unpleasant circumstances. And we need to model gratitude in our homes. When my husband stops what he's doing and helps me with something, I thank him. And when my teenager cleans up the kitchen, I say thank you. When my one-year-old lays still on the changing table and doesn't flip over and throw all of the things off of the table and then stand up and pull the decorations off of the wall, I say thank you for being such a big girl and laying still for your diaper change. And in return, when I cook dinner for my family, my husband says thank you. When I give my 14-year-old a ride to a friend's house, she says thank you. And even my one-year-old has started to say thank you. Sometimes she gets it wrong. Sometimes she hands me something and then says thank you, but we're getting there. She's starting to understand. See, we can fall into this mindset of I'm not going to thank somebody for something that's their job to do or their responsibility. Like, oh, I'm not going to thank my husband for putting gas in the car because he drives the car too, so he should put gas in it. Or I'm not going to thank my child for having a clean room. She's the one who lives there. She should want it to be clean. No, we have to get away from this. Oh, that's their job. They don't deserve any gratitude. And we have to think to ourselves, nobody owes me anything. And I'm going to thank people every time they make my load lighter. When we have this gratitude in our home, it brings a lot more peace and a lot less arguing. And in our homes, we need to make the determination that even though we disagree, we're not going to argue. And we need to teach our children to express their opinions without raising their voices, without slamming doors, without shutting down and shutting people out, without name-calling. And if you or your spouse or your child is too angry to follow these guidelines, then take time to cool down and come back to it later. There are very few issues that have to be dealt with in the heat of the moment. Most things can wait until you've had time to pray about it, time to let your emotions cool off, time to call a trusted mentor and say, this is what's going on, this is how I'm feeling, help me process it. Most things can wait. Going back to James 1.19 and then going on to verse 20. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. 
Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. When he says everyone, I'm pretty sure he meant parents with their children as well. When you find out your child did something that disappointed you, rather than immediately going to the accusing, and I'm so disappointed, and I'm so angry, why not go to, I know this happened, can you tell me why? Can you tell me what you were thinking? Can you tell me what those circumstances were? And take time to listen to them and understand them. And remember that no amount of anger is going to teach your child righteousness. When you read Philippians 2, you'll notice that it's not just a list of don't do this, don't act like that, don't think this way. But Paul also writes several things that we need to do in order to embody the character of Christ. The first one is be one in mind and one in spirit with other believers. In verses 1 and 2, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. So what if Christians around the world just laid aside our differences and focused on three things? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself and go and make disciples. If we could do that and be united in that way, be of one mind and of one spirit, we would be unstoppable. We wouldn't need welfare. There would be no shortage of teachers, of foster parents, of community volunteers. No one would go hungry because the more united that the Christians are in a community, the more that community looks like heaven and the more cared for the least of these become. We have to set aside those petty differences. Don't worry about where somebody goes to church or what that denomination believes and instead worry about how we are bringing the kingdom of heaven to the world around us. Paul knew that our flesh fights against being united with those who are different from ourselves. So he gave the church at Philippi another helpful hint for how to be a united body of believers. And that is, in humility, value others above yourself. So we have to internalize the fact that, peop that people's needs matter. Be the person who volunteers to do the job that nobody else wants to do. Be the person who makes everybody feel heard and valued. Be the person who is willing to make a sacrifice for the benefit of the group. When you're given a leadership role, be a servant leader and look for ways to serve and to build up your team. Instead of worrying about what other people think about you, maybe we should worry about how other people feel around us, how other people experience us, what emotions are drawn out in their interactions with me. Pick out a day this week and after every conversation, ask yourself these three questions. Did I listen? Did I encourage and did I help? If you will listen to, encourage, and help everyone you encounter throughout the day, your relationships will flourish and you'll be inviting joy into your life. When we seek to serve others, we are embodying the character of Christ. Finally, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Verses 12 and 13, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. The moment you say to yourself, you know, I pretty much have this Christian thing down. I pretty much have it under control. I'm probably about as Christian as I'll ever be. <laughs> that is when the enemy gets that stronghold in your life. Because as long as you are living and breathing here on this earth, you are in a battle against your sin nature. Not a day will go by that you do not have to deny yourself in order to be more like Christ. The Old Testament outlines man's struggle to commune with God. We cannot be good enough 
or live holy enough to be in God's presence. And that is why Jesus came to take our sins onto himself and become the perfect sacrifice who makes a way for man to be with God for all eternity. Later on in the book of Philippians, Paul compares the Christian life to a race. Even the most talented athletes have to continue to practice, to eat right, to take care of their bodies, to overcome mental and emotional obstacles. The best athletes never say, now that I'm at the top of my game, I don't need to work at it anymore. I have arrived as an athlete, here I am, I will never get any worse. No, they know that their body is fighting against them to bring them back to that out of shape state that they were in before. They keep working, they keep striving, they know their weaknesses, and they keep working to overcome them. And as Christians, we need to strive to be like Christ the way an athlete strives to be at the top of his game. The key difference between the Christian walk and an athlete's training is that the Christian has God working on him from within. Look at verse 13 again. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. You are not alone in the struggle. Both medical and psychological research often talk about interaction effects. An interaction effect takes place when two or more variables combine to have somewhat of an unexpected effect on another variable. So let's say that you've got triplet, identical triplet brothers, and all three of them are trying to lose weight. And the first brother decides that he is going to eat healthy for a month. The second brother decides he is going to exercise for a month. And the third brother decides that he is going to eat healthy and exercise for a month. He's going to do both. The first brother at the end of the month has lost five pounds. The second brother at the end of the month has lost five pounds. But the third brother who did both didn't lose 10 pounds. He lost 15 pounds because the interaction of the diet and the exercise had a more powerful effect on his weight loss. That's an interaction effect of two variables on his weight. In our deeper series over these last three weeks, we have discussed emotions, thoughts, and actions. And these three variables have an interaction effect on your relationship with God. When your thoughts, feelings, and actions are all aligned with God's word, they can become a powerful force pushing you deeper into a deeper and more meaningful faith. When we dive deep into the word, we find that Christianity is so much more than following some rules, saying a prayer, and going to heaven. So many people are living out a warped version of Christianity that is nothing more than a watered-down, edited-for-time-and-content movie version of God's word. God is calling us to something deeper. He is calling us to dive deep into the word, to invest time and energy into a relationship with him, and to discover who he created us to be. We are called to be more than rule followers. We are called to embody Christ and to carry his light, his hope, and his presence into this lost and dying world. We need to be like the Jesus we read about in scripture. Let's stand together and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we pray, Lord, that your word will come to life within us and make us more like you. That your Holy Spirit will move in us and draw us nearer to you. God, that you would reveal to us the actions that we need to take or not take in order to show Christ to the world around us. Thank you, Lord, for loving us and for being with us in this place, for working from within us to make us like you. In Jesus' name. At this time, the prayer teams are going to come down. If you need prayer for anything, if you feel like you're 
out of sync with Christ, if you have a medical need or an emotional need, any kind of need that you would like another believer to stand with you and believe for God's intervention, we're going to invite you at this time to come down and receive prayer. For everyone else, if you would just stay to the end of the song, worship God for a few more moments, and Dan will dismiss you when we're done. Thank you and have a great week. God. He's faithful, isn't he? God is so faithful. God bless you. Have a great week. Go into